0: If you have your bibles, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4 and we our focal verse passage this morning is going to be verses 11 through 13. I'm going to allude to some of the previous verses, but we're going to rest there. This morning's message is entitled The Double-Edged Sword. Uh, which many of us, even if you've never read this passage from the book of Hebrews, will know, at the very least, as an idiom uh, from our culture. We often say that certain things are a double-edged sword. And what we often mean by that, by a double-edged sword, is that that situation or that um, uh, circumstance that we find ourselves in, it has both negative uh, connotations and positive connotations. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Uh, And what I'm going to suggest this morning is that that's likely not what the author had in mind with this passage. It's likely not what the author had in mind uh, with this passage. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit um, and what I think the author had in mind is much is something much deeper and something much uh, more um, urgent, something much more important for us to hear. Um, and I'll explain that a little bit. And I will also explain how this idea of both negative and positive connotations, going with a double-edged sword, isn't wrong. It's just not what the author intended. And so, That's where we're going to be. Um, If you've not been with us, we've continued to walk through Hebrews over the last few weeks. And where we've been is this idea. So just like like a, a one, two minute summary is that the author begins Hebrews by talking about the supremacy of Christ and and we just we celebrate the supremacy of Christ and we magnify Christ and we we look at phrases uh, for instance like in starting in verse 3 that he meaning Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power i mean phrases like that elevate Christ above and beyond any other entity we've ever uh, we could ever know we could ever uh, come in contact with and so there's been just this supremacy of Christ being exalted through the first few chapters and then the author begins talking about this idea of how we shall not we we dare not fall away from Christ and we talked about how these phrases and how these sentences in Hebrews are warning phrases to Christians, not that a genuine Christian can fall away, but that these are warning passages that God uses to prevent believers from falling away. And we, we talked about how that's sort of a like one of the danger signs from the Grand Canyon. And then in the last week or two, we've been talking about how believers who persevere will be able to enter into God's rest and the author uses Psalm 95 and we're going to jump back there real quick and read that just to remind us we look at the, we look at Psalm 95 as an example two examples actually one of what a genuine believer looks like as they exalt God and then as an unbeliever what happens when we idolize the world around us so let's just jump back real quick this is not our focal passage but i want us to remember What the author is saying. This is back at Psalm 95, and the psalmist is referring in this passage to the Israelites in the wilderness. And if you remember that story, the Israelites were rescued by God through the work of Moses and Aaron from the Egyptians through the 10 plagues, through the Red Sea, and then because of their disobedience, they were isolated in the wilderness for 40 years. And God said that they would not enter his rest. Now, in the Old Testament, God's rest referred to a physical place. It was the land of Canaan. It was the promised land across the Jordan. But some of those individuals would not take the people, their families, over the Jordan into the promised land. In fact, Moses was not allowed, due to his disobedience, to enter into the land that was promised. Rather, Joshua had to enter that land on the behalf of, of the Israelites. So beginning in Psalm 95, it says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now folks, that should should be the orientation of the heart of a believer. That should be the orientation of our heart. In fact, this is a, is an old praise hymn. Many of you all may have grown up singing this praise hymn. I remember singing it every other Sunday because that's what good Baptists do. And I love this song. What I never realized while I was singing this song as a teenager is that the author decided to neglect to read or sing the rest of it. And here's why. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Folks, that doesn't have the same ring to it. On a Sunday morning, when you get up, we want to sing, let's worship the Lord, our God, our maker, not God loathes me. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. But that's the reality. The Israelites in the wilderness disobeyed God. So why did the Israelites in the Old Testament, why could they not enter God's rest? Because they were disobedient and they were idolaters. That's why. And the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 as an example of what not to do. Don't be like them. They looked and were of physically the people of God, but they were not the people of God because they did not rejoice in God. True belief evokes worship. It causes obedience. But in Psalm 95, we, the, the psalmist demonstrates unbelief which looks like idolatry and disobedience. We dare not call ourselves believers and fall into that second camp. Because what that means, according to the book of Hebrews, is that you are not a genuine believer. He's pretty blunt. And what that looks like in somebody who was raised, possibly, who's very active in the church, but falls into that second camp... It looks like somebody who has fallen away. But the truth is they didn't really fall away. They were never part of the group in the first place. They were imposters. I fear that our churches are filled, filled with imposters. And by the way, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. Billy Graham said such. In fact, Billy Graham, I believe, said that he believes that 80% of our regular attenders and members in our churches are imposters. Now, I don't know if that statistic is true. But I fear that it is closer than we'd like to admit. The author in Hebrews warns us not to harden our hearts towards God. Not to harden our hearts towards God. That's a dangerous place to be. Not to harden our hearts towards God with unbelief as the Israelites did. And then, But if we look in verse 8 of Hebrews, he, he shares just a little bit more about this concept of rest. Starting in verse 8, going to verse 10, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, so this concept of the Sabbath rest, what we'd look at there is this idea that it is this final, ultimate rest where we can rest from our burdens, rest from our cares, rest from the the sin and the shame of the world, and we can rest permanently from God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Joshua led the people of God who were obedient across the Jordan into a place of rest. But it wasn't the final place of rest. Now I want you to, to listen to me here very carefully Joshua in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus. A type of Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, Joshua and Jesus, those names are indistinguishable. They look identical. Joshua is a type of Jesus, meaning he is foreshadowing Jesus, much like David was foreshadowing Jesus. But Here's the crux. This is where we have to be very careful. Joshua, unlike Jesus, was providing a place of rest. Jesus is providing a person in which to rest. See, genuine believers are not so much concerned about the place, but about the person. Right? I often say this is that if I'm going on a trip, I don't really care where it is. If I'm going on a trip, if my wife is with me, it is automatically a thousand times better. A thousand times better. That's called brownie points, folks. Guys, get with it. All right? But seriously, you know exactly what I mean. With someone you love and you care about, when they are with you, it doesn't matter where you are, you're in a better place. Well, it's the same thing with Jesus. Heaven could be any place, but as long as Christ is there, it's better. Because we don't rest in a place, we rest in Christ, in a person. Canaan was a temporary sanctuary for the Israelites who were allowed to enter. Christ is a permanent home. And so in some ways, we have what I would call an unfulfilled rest an unfulfilled rest. But we want to persevere in Christ so that we might enter a permanent rest where we can be with Jesus for eternity. So today the author is going to be concluding this theme of rest by looking at the practicality of perseverance. We are called to persevere. And today we're going to look at how we must do three things. Pursue obedience. We must pursue obedience... We're going to look at how we are pierced by God's Word, and then by it, how God perceives our very thoughts and intentions. I'm very Baptist today. I have three points, and they all start with the word letter P. All right? So I'm, 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 I'm coming about it, folks. I, I've arrived. All right? So are you ready? Here we go. Let's all stand. I'm going to read our passage this morning so we can kind of dive in here. And I want us to really be in tune. If you have your Bibles open, your phones, digital devices, whatever it might be, we're going to jump around a little bit. I'd really like for you to follow along with me. But here we are starting in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And he's talking about that Sabbath, that ultimate rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is that your word would do just that. It would fulfill that promise that you would pierce us with your word this morning. And even though it is painful even though it is difficult, even though it is uncomfortable, even though it, it can it, at times it can uh, bring massive changes to our life. Father, I pray that you would do that because your word is the only authority by which we might live by. That is what you have ordained. That's what you have uh, providentially secured for us, Lord. And I pray that we would commit ourselves to be a people of the word, not a people of the world. Father, I love you. in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the first part here. Pursuing obedience. Let's look at that first verse. The author says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the author is saying this, Do not be like those Israelites in the wilderness and fall by the wayside because of your disobedience. And by the way, just to be clear, disobedience in Scripture is correlated with unbelief. Those two things are tied together. If you are a disobedient person, you are an unbelieving person. Now, I want to be very careful about that. That doesn't mean that those who are believers are always perfect or always obedient. That's not true either. John says that very clearly in his letters. But what we mean is that while we are in disobedience... We are denying the truth that God is sufficient for everything. Our joy, our happiness, our salvation. Because we choose to be disobedient, we are idolizing ourselves over God, over the Father, over Christ and His commands. And so the author here is telling us to be obedient and not fall away. So let's look at the first half of that. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That word strive. Folks, Obedience is not an accident. It's not an accident. It is not contagious. It's not contagious. It's not like COVID 19. All right? You can't just be in the line at Walmart next to a godly person and all of a sudden catch obedience. It'd be great if that's the way it worked. I'd be rubbing up all over people. That doesn't sound right. Let's scratch that one. No, you get the idea, okay? All right. I mean, we'd be getting next to everybody if obedience and holiness was contagious. Well, we would never we would never fail to meet together if we longed to be with Christ. That's not the way it is. Pursuing obedience is difficult. It can be difficult. It's not like with obedience that we wake up we we just wake up one morning after a life of sin and disobedience, and we just say, oh, I'm cured. It's a journey. It's a journey that I fear far too many nominal Christians and genuine Christians neglect to take. It's my fear that there are many parents that are shrugging off the need to raise their children and seeing what obedience looks like, we don't want to push too hard. We don't want to press too hard. We might turn them away. Folks, you might, but you're not the one doing it. It's just an unbelieving, disobedient heart. Continue to share the gospel, the truth. So even though we are saved by grace, through faith, obedience must still be pursued. The Israelites in the wilderness failed to pursue obedience because it is much easier to pursue your own desires. Because your desires, if they don't match up for Christ, like with Christ, what happens is it's easier to pursue your own desires. What you may want for your life is not what God wants for your life. But if you are constantly pursuing yourself, that means you are running away from God. And that never leads anywhere good. Now, here's the thing. Some of us say, well, I'm grown. I'm an adult. I've kind of lived my life. Folks, there is no stopping in this pursuit of obedience. We can't stop. We can't fail to strive towards holiness. Many Christians believe one of two things about obedience Number one, that it saves you. Or number two, it's inconsequential to salvation. And folks, both of these are wrong. Neither one of these are true. As we've said many times, our obedience doesn't save us. Christ's work saves us. The gift of faith saves us. But at the same time, obedience is not optional. Christ never said, follow my commands if you want to. That wasn't his word to us. His word is, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. Obedience is a product of salvation, it's the fruit of salvation, it is the evidence of salvation. Obedience must be pursued. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? Therefore my beloved as you have always as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. The daily life and grind of a Christian is summed up very well in that passage. We are not saved by our works, but after we are saved, we are working out that salvation in our life. The process of sanctification is not an, is, it's not an idle activity. It is one that we work towards, that we are making effort towards for the sake of the glory of God. God is propelling us in this way. We are put to work through an obedient life by God. And the thought of failing this task should cause us to fear and tremble. We cannot fail to pursue holiness. It can't happen. We cannot do it as believers. There is no option here. I want you to think about it this way too. When we're pursuing Christ, pursuit or striving as the author uses it, that, that, that gives you an image of moving somewhere, right? Some believers, I think, get exhausted by the pursuit. I get it. They get exhausted by the pursuit. And so what happens is they say, well, I've been pursuing and I've been striving. I'm just going to take a break. And that's when sin targets you. Here's kind of a funny picture about this, okay? Imagine someone shooting arrows at you. You're a really easy target if you're just standing still. You're a really easy target. But if you are running, running towards safety and throw a few zigzags in there along the way, right? Right. We got to do that. That's what they never do that in the movies, right? It's just a straight shot, Clint Eastwood and Tom Selleck. I'm sorry, Debbie's not here. We're going to, have to tell her that I mentioned Tom Selleck. But I mean, that's an easy shot, right? Throw some zigzags in there on the way. But the truth is, if we're running you're a lot harder target if you are moving. Likewise, sin has a lot more difficult time targeting you if you are pursuing Christ. So pursue Christ pursue Christ, pursue obedience. Now, the second point is this, is this idea of being pierced by the word. And so the author continues for the word of God. So he tells us to strive for obedience, right? We're striving to enter that rest. And then he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always, I'm sorry, jump passage for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, why does the author use this verse in this way? Okay, why does he use it? Why does he call the Bible a two-edged sword? Why does he use that phrase? all right? And what does it mean that the word is living and active? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work sort of uh, backwards here with this, okay? So one of the struggles that we see, I want you to think right now of the culture that we're in. And by the way, the time that we're in is no different than in times past, okay? We automatically think, well, things are so much different. They're not. It's just that we're a lot more aware of things right now, okay? So now here's the thing. One of the struggles that we see in our culture right now is this tension between laws and the Constitution and modern morality. Okay? That's one of the tensions that we see. All right? And what happens is our laws and our morality, okay, are securing us from harming one another. All right? That's what the laws are good. Those are a good thing. I'm thankful for laws, I'm thankful for the Constitution. Yet over here, the worldly, our culture, all right, that becomes more and more worldly, that shouldn't surprise us, that's in the Bible, all right, as we become more worldly, that's conflicting and causing tension between these laws that are trying to protect us, all right, so what we do is, as a culture, instead of conforming our morality to these laws that are meant to protect us, we change the laws to allow our morality to expand, our immorality to expand, That's what happens, all right? So it ends up being a moving target because our immorality is not going to shrink. It's only going to expand, and we keep moving laws and the Constitution in order to accommodate our behavior. That's what we're seeing right now, okay? That's why the Supreme Court has been exceptionally active lately with all sorts of things. So now, here's the thing. On the other hand, I want you to compare that. And by the way, I I, I love the Constitution. I'm glad we have one. I'm glad we have laws. But it is not the Bible. So let's tie it into the Bible, okay? The Bible does not change. Scripture does not get altered. Now, we might wish it did. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, I believe, hopefully I'm not wrong here, all right? But Thomas Jefferson did not like all of Scripture, And so what he did was he cut some of it out. So if you open his Bible, there are literal holes in the Bible because he didn't like some of it. Folks, we don't have that authority. Just because you rip out a few pages or cut out a few verses doesn't mean that Scripture goes away. Scripture does not change. We cannot mold Scripture to our desires. We might like to, but we can't. Rather, Our life must be molded to the word of God, which is steady and unchanging. We cannot change God's word, but it can change us. All right? So that's what the author is implying in part by calling it living and active. The Constitution and our laws cannot change hearts, they can merely secure and contain and constrain certain behavior. But the Word of God is living and it is active. It can change hearts, it can move us to repentance. And likewise, the Scripture, the Word of God, is deeply penetrating. Now like I told you many individuals believe this idea of a double-edged sword. Now I think we would all agree that a sword or a knife that is double-edged, okay, is going to be more effective at penetrating than just one that has one edge. Okay? That's just that's common sense, right? Well the Bible is double-edged now, what I told you is that in our idiom, we believe that that, of, all, uh, that oftentimes we think that part of it is positive and part of it's negative. I don't believe that's what the author means here. Listen to what he says here: For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Why is the Bible double-edged? Because it pierces deeply. It goes further than anything else can it cuts right through the hardest substances of our body. It can pierce the joint of a bone directly to that soft tissue in the middle. A single-edged sword isn't going to do that, but a double-edged sword might with a nice sharp point. Now here's the thing. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is not superficial. It deeply penetrates to actively and livingly move and change us. The Word of God provides conviction concerning our actions, but it also provides convictions about the intentions of our heart that produces those actions. See, it doesn't just look on this superficial level of what we see. The Bible is able to inspect and discern what is in our hearts. Now, that's a scary thought. I mean, here's the truth. If you don't want to be convicted, then don't read the Scripture. But if you don't read the Scripture, you won't change. I hope you're hearing me on this. If you don't want to be convicted in your life, then just put up your Bible, use it as a doorstop like many do, okay? But if you want to be like Christ, then read this thing. Let it penetrate you. Let it pierce you to the depths of your soul so that you might be changed and become like Christ. That's how God uses this thing. If the Constitution and law are a yardstick to direct and maintain and measure society's morality, then it's a moving target. In other words, it's a really bad yardstick. Okay? As much as I like the Constitution, it's a really bad director of morality. However, the Word of God is the gold standard for holiness. Our pursuit of holiness and obedience are not determined by a cultural standard, but a biblical standard. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible is being used for, to build us up towards holiness, to help us in this pursuit of holiness. It is not a casual guide. It is a reservoir of God's glory that leads us to obedience. God uses it to change us. And to put it very simply, to ignore Scripture is to ignore God. To ignore Scripture is to ignore God. Folks, I don't want to be on that boat when it goes down. The Bible is God's authoritative and providentially secured way of showing us the narrow path of Christ. God's word is dangerous for the person who longs for the ways of the world, but it is a lifeboat and a necessity for those who long to pursue Christ. Which goes to our final point. It's this perception of God or perceived by God. So verse 13 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight. So the word pierces. So we're striving for obedience, striving for that rest. The word pierces our heart and our soul. And then it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Just a quick illustration. Sometimes when I get home from work, all right or home from the store or something and Jackson is already at home he will run off Jackson will run off real quick there he heard his name all right Jackson will run off and he will try to hide real quick right it's it's kind of a game your kids probably do it as well or they used to do it they'll run off and they'll try to hide from you or if it's time to go to bed and he has to get his teeth brushed then he'll go hide right here's the problem with that, okay? When Jackson goes hot, goes to hide, as good as he is at it, there's, a, there's always a big foot sticking out from under a cover. He's exposed at some level. This big mangy foot is sticking out of the cover, right? Or, this is what's really funny, he'll have a cover, he'll be completely covered, and then right on top, this big plume of red hair poof, is sticking out, right? I'm sorry, Jackson, orange hair. He's very clear on his hair is orange, okay? So you can hi- he can hide all that he wants. All that he wants. But something is going to expose him. And if every part of his physical being is covered, what's going to expose him? His giggle. I'll walk past the table which he's hiding under, and all of a sudden I'll hear, <laughs> yeah, there he is. Now that's a funny illustration. But that is exactly what we try to do with God. We try, ridiculously so, to hide from the creator of the universe. Or, knowing that we can't hide from him, we try to ignore him. Right? Jackson, it's time to brush your teeth. Jackson, it's time to brush your teeth. Jackson, it's time to brush your teeth. Folks, he's not upstairs in his room with the door closed. He is literally right there with an iPad in front of him. And I'm saying, Jackson, it's time to brush your teeth. And I know he hears me because he does this. He knows I'm calling on him, but he's willfully ignoring me. And he thinks it's so cute, and it is, and it's hard to get him get mad at him. But so here's the deal. We cannot hide from God. We cannot run from God. We cannot ignore God. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Not only are we exposed, we are exposed to the one who is going to judge us. Who is going to hold us accountable. You can run from God your entire life ignoring, him that, ignoring that he's here or hiding from him, but he sees and you will be held accountable for that. That is a terrifying thing for an unbeliever who is willfully disobeying God. But, but, for the one who is genuinely pursuing Christ, whose heart's desire is to be like their Savior, We're not terrified by that. But we are encouraged because He gives us the resources to be able to pursue. We don't have to play guesswork on what God wants. God does not say, Wait, I want you to be like Christ, and then leaves us out there for the animals and doesn't gives us, give, He doesn't give us direction. He gives us every bit of the direction that we need in this word that pierces through bone and marrow. None of us will achieve perfection on this side of glory, but this shouldn't stop us from pursuing the holiness of Christ. Pursuing Christ is not all about the final result, meaning the action, but it is also the intention of the heart. And so what I mean by that is this. There are many times in my life where I sincerely thought what was the most biblical and glorifying action to take actually missed the mark. It actually missed the mark. Now, I have two choices. I can say, I missed the mark, I sinned, I'm not going to try that again. Or I can get up, dust myself off, repent, and keep pursuing Christ. That's just the life of the believer. It is the life of the believer. The orientation and intention of my heart, of our hearts, allows us to learn from mistakes and sin even, so that we make better and wiser and more God-glorifying choices next time. The life of obedience is not a bunch of perfect people making perfect choices, but rather... It's a bunch of forgiven sinners seeking to please God by loving Him, our neighbor, repenting of sin, growing in wisdom and maturity, praying for grace and wisdom and mercy, and then waking up tomorrow and doing it all over again. Praying that tomorrow will be better than today. And oftentimes that it is. But if you fail to pursue God... If you fail to strive for that rest in which He promises, you're not going to make any headway, but rather you're just going to retreat backwards into a life of sin. You will make mistakes. I will make mistakes. And here's the thing. If you continue to uh, pursue God, before you know it, you turn 41, and you're further along in this Christian life than when you were 18. And you look back and you say, thank you, God, for your mercy. The good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ saves us despite our sin. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God uses us despite our sin. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that one day we will find permanent rest from our sin in the presence of Christ. Now, I want to close in this way, in a very practical way. Many of you all came with someone today or you have those who love you in your life, care about you, that you spend time with, Here's what I want to encourage you to that person that you spend that time with. It is a very dangerous thing for the believer in Christ to try to pursue Christ on their own. It just is. Case in point is that for the last 17 and a half years, I have been pursuing Christ with my wife. And I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that I am further along in my relationship with Christ. Not despite her, but because of her. And I hope that it's, that it's reciprocal. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe your spouse is an unbeliever. Maybe your friend's spouse is an unbeliever as you are teaching and trying to disciple individuals. Find an individual who sincerely wants to follow Christ and pursue Christ and do it together. Do it together to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another, to chastise if that's necessary. By the way, I get chastised a lot more than I dev- chastise. Alright? We are not in this journey alone. Read the Word together. Pray together. Talk about the things of God together. And pursue Christ together. And then do not fail To meet with the body of Christ regularly, who will come along beside you and support you and love you and to help keep you on that narrow path. Hopefully, corporately guided by the Word of God. And that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer. In fact, I think that's been my prayer for the last four years of being here. It'll be four years in September. And my prayer has been not that we would be flashy and not that we would have the fanciest programs, all right, or anything like that. My prayer is that we would be faithful. And you would think that that would be a pretty innocuous thing. But it's not. Individuals who do not desire to be faithful do not want to be around people who desire to be faithful. So what I am encouraging you to do is surround yourself with people who are on this journey of pursuing Christ together so that we all may eventually enter God's rest.